The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now for our featured presentation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How Was This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at How Was This Movie. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash howwasthismovie. You can always email me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. So going back to 2012, I started a Facebook page called Simply Enough, How is this movie? I have been a film lover my whole life and wanted to find an outlet to express how I felt about movies. To be fair, the page was very rudimentary, but the essence of what How is this movie would become can be found in those first few posts. Instead of focusing on new releases, I would write a paragraph or two about older films that I really appreciated. Well, six years later, I'm still doing How is this movie, albeit in a much different format than that first Facebook page I created. But as How Is This Movie has evolved, one thing that has never changed was the love that I have for movies. Longtime listeners have heard me talk about the history of this podcast, but it bears repeating that when I first started the show, I never envisioned the connections that I would make. From talking with fellow film lovers from around the world, meeting some awesome fellow podcasters, some of whom I was a big fan of before I even started this show, to getting a chance to meet some amazing filmmakers. I never have, nor will I ever, take these experiences for granted. Now, if there's one thing about me, it's that I'm forever curious about the world of filmmaking. From telling you the stories of how some of the greatest and most beloved films got made, to understanding the inner workings of the Hollywood machine. One of my more frequent guests is filmmaker Phil Giovanno. Along with discussing some of his films, Phil and I have done an extensive look at how Hollywood has changed over the past 30 years. Phil has had an insider's perspective for the better part of his professional career, and I credit him with really helping me to understand how Hollywood and filmmaking really works. Now, I've been a fan of Phil's movies for as long as I can remember, going all the way back to 1987's Three O'Clock High. So getting the opportunity to talk with him on a frequent basis has been, well, awesome. In this two-part episode, I wanted to learn what inspired him to want to be a filmmaker and to eventually go to USC Film School. Now, if you've listened to previous episodes in which Phil has been a guest on the show, you know that he always has some fantastic stories. And in this two-part episode, he once again does not disappoint. So please enjoy this episode that I'm calling A Filmmaker's Journey. Phil, welcome back to How Is This Movie? It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Great to be back. The reason I wanted to talk to you today is we've we've talked uh, at length uh, about a, a few of your films, and, and I've always mm-hmm. enjoyed those conversations. And the very first time that I chatted with you, going way back to, I think it was December of 2015, or it was January 2016, it was shortly after uh, you had sent me a copy of The Veil to watch before it became available on Netflix. You had talked a little bit about being at film school you know, having the conversation with Spielberg and you told a fantastic story, which I encourage everybody to go back and listen to that episode. But one thing I never got a chance to ask you about, and I really have been curious about, is where does the inspiration to want to go to film school, to want to be a filmmaker, where does that come from? And more specifically, what are the movies that inspired you to want to do this? You know, I always 
probably like every filmmaker there ever has been, I've always loved movies. You know, I think that when growing up, when I was, when I was a young pup, I, I think the first movie that really just caught my, captured my imagination and, and it's, it's silly because it's of course one of the most, you know, well-known movies ever, but, but really I fell in love with was Casablanca. And I just loved that film when I was little and, you know, it was on TV all the time and uh, I hadn't seen it in the, in the theater, of course. Um, but I saw it on TV and I watched it every single time it was on and I just loved, it's a really, really well-made movie. Curtiz was actually a good director, obviously. I just, I thought to myself, God, how much fun would it be to tell stories like that? So that film really kind of was my first kind of love affair with cinema. But then when I was in my early teens, I went and saw Jaws. I was blown away by that film um, for, for so many reasons. Uh, first, because the, the, the style of filmmaking and the immediacy of it um, and, and the visceral response it got out of me and the audience, you know, at that time, I mean, people were screaming in the theater, jumping out of their chairs, freaking out. People didn't want to go in the water that summer. It was such a phenomenon. And to and I was so lucky because I I got to live through it. You know, you now you can read about it and hear about it. And Jaws was this and Jaws was that. But I literally lived through it in real time. <laughs> and and what what I noticed um, in watching the film was I actually for the first time ever I really realized the role of a director behind the camera of what the filmmaker was doing to get those responses out of me, to create suspense, or to create fear, uh, to create tension, um, to build the story, to build the performances, to build, you know, sequences. And, and I, and because Spielberg's style is so unique and remains to this day, uniquely his, it really spoke to me right away. I could see, I could see the filmmaking and I became fascinated with kind of the reverse engineering and trying to understand how he did it. And it really was the, the the first time in my life that I that I was like, wait a second, I want to understand what the guy did that was behind the camera that made me and everyone else in the theater react like that. Because it wasn't some kind of sloppy, crazy, handheld horror film. It wasn't some sort of, you know, just kind of like, oh, it was scary because the knife was trying to attack. You know, it was scary because the guy had a chainsaw. It was scary. No, this was like more 90% of the time in that movie, you never saw the shark. You know, that opening sequence with with the woman, you know, swimming out into the water and being yanked around. Um, I just rewatched it for this conversation and it is still absolutely jarring. And you're just like, oh, my God, there is no shark. There's no I mean, imagine what they do today with CG. Imagine it wouldn't even be. It, it, it wouldn't even be considered to never show at least a piece of the shark or the dorsal, you know, the dorsal fin or, or anything. It, 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 instead it was all about what was happening under the water. And I thought that, you know, from, so from the get go, I was like, wait a second, 
that just scared the living hell out of me. And and it's also incredibly cinematic the way it's executed too. You know, cross cutting with the kid on the beach who's passed out and. He's like, I'm coming, I'm coming. And you're because you're wondering if he's gonna come rescue her. And you know, maybe she'll make it. She grabs onto the buoy and then she's yanked off the buoy and she's driven straight at us. I mean, the contraption they had yanking her under the water must have been a hell of a thing. And and I know she actually, I, I believe, broke a few ribs in, in, in that sequence. And she's in one point you can hear her yelling, It hurts, it hurts. And she's actually saying it hurts, it hurts. They thought she was acting, but it, she was saying the contraption yanking her around was hurting her. Um, so the story goes. But so anyway, that movie was the film that made that made me want to kind of like if, if you think of like uh, you, you go to a magic show and your whole life, you're just kind of like, wow, magic, it's cool. How, uh, you know, oh, I don't know. How do they do it? And then suddenly you see a magician and it's so elaborate and it's so mind blowing and it's and it's so immediate and special. You say, wait, time out. I need to know how that guy did that. And that kind of became my quest really was was to then understand and um want to become a version <laughs> of 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 what he did and and that was really you know pretty much a hundred percent i mean the, obviously from there then then many other films and filmmakers which we can talk about inspired me to continue to pursue it but the film that did it was jaws did i already tell you the story about what i did when i with jaws uh no when i don't I, I don't believe when so I no. in, when i went in with my camera no, no, please, please oh, share. Okay, I became so obsessed with understanding Jaws. I actually, I was the, uh, yes, the geeky yearbook photographer at my school. And I had a camera and they gave me lots of black and white film um, for that job. And so I ended up seeing Jaws five times in the theater when it came out. And what I did uh, the last two times is I took my camera into the theater during, it was toward the end of its run, and I, I was a pretty empty sh screening, and I, I propped it up on the chair in front of me, and I took pictures of every single shot in Jaws. And so as a new shot would come, I'd click, and then a new shot would come, I'd click, and then a new shot I'd, would come, and I'd click. And I brought all these rolls of film, then when I would reload, of course, I would miss some shots. So then I stayed for the second screening, and I, took pictures of the portions that I missed in the first screen. So I ended up with still photographs of every single shot in Jaws. And then I also took in this old fashioned cassette recorder and I set it on the seat next to me and I recorded the entire movie, the sound. So then I took the film home and I, I developed it and I printed four by six prints of every single shot in Jaws. So hundreds and hundreds. It took me a few weeks <laughs> to do, you know, on and off. And, and then what I did when I was all done with that, I then, my um, bedroom had, my closet was bulletin boards. And that uh, was like bulletin board material on my closet, sliding closet doors. And I pinned up every shot, you know, in order like storyboards, but I didn't know what storyboards were. And I put them in order on my closet, top to bottom. And then, so I could look at shot by shot, Jaws, how Jaws was constructed. And then I would sit on my bed and I would play the cassette recorder and I would play the sound and I would watch the movie frame by frame.
Let me say something. As longtime listeners of my show will know, that Jaws is and continues to be my all-time favorite film. And that, oh, wow. that may have been the greatest Jaws-related story I have ever heard in my life. That was That's incredible. Everyone thought I was completely crazy, of course. You know, I don't know what my parents must have thought of me. <laughs> but, it, but what was cool was because I was the yearbook photographer, it didn't really cost me anything because they gave me all the materials. And I, I laid there. And you got to remember, you couldn't get a VHS after the movie came out. You couldn't get a DVD after the movie came out. You couldn't get it on Apple TV after it came out. Back then, when a movie was gone, it was gone. So in my mind, I was never going to have a chance to see Jaws again. I mean, I didn't know that DVDs were on the way. I didn't know VHS. This is pre-home video. So so literally, and then when they would show it on TV, of course, they would cut all the bits out. And they'd put commercials in and edit it for television. They'd ruin it. And it was always ruined when you saw your movie, you know, three years later on TV. So I was like, no, no, no. I need to have access to this movie at all times. And that's just going to be... I just, it was, became my talisman, you know? And, um, so yeah, I studied it and I studied it. And again, it just, I, I just wanted to unlock the techniques he was using. And what was cool about having the recording is I wasn't just trying to unlock the visual techniques, but then I could hear the sound techniques, you know, the shocks and the, you know, and the music, of course. I mean, oh my God, you know, I just, just sitting there and realizing how much of the fear and tension was created by John Williams' score. I mean, many years later, Spielberg told me the movie was an absolute, utter failure before the score. He said the shark was laughable, you, no one was scared, you know, even with their temp music they put on it. He said, he said to me, he said, as soon as I heard the first cue, which was the opening credits cue, the dun, 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 he was like, Oh God, this could work. Cause as everyone knows, it was an extremely tortured production, that oh, movie. Oh, yes. Know? And, uh, you know, it's a famous story. So, and it was tortured all the way up until John Williams score hit the screen, you know, with the pictures. And, and I think that again, that was a huge lesson for me is like, don't, it's not over. You know, the, your movie is in no way, shape or form, not even close to done until you've got your score. And we all know, and we could cite thousands of examples of how score completely elevated uh, a movie into, into the into the up into being a, becoming a classic. That without the same score, it might not be a classic. I'm not talking about Jaws, my many 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 movies. Um, and uh, and then to have him confirm that was 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 pretty cool. Excellent. So Jaws is 1975. Yes. Now that I mean to me that's again uh, I I've just said it's greatest film. Of all time, my opinion. Love, love the movie. I'm staring at a copy of the Blu-ray over there on my desk right now. I, I, I literally rewatched it yesterday for this podcast. Because so <laughs> I just, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna end up talking about it. You got to go back to it. And, and, and you know what is another thing? I want to throw in another quick thing about Jaws that people don't talk about, which I think is just an interesting thing that the movie also taught me a little bit later on. Um, but, but still, I remember being struck by it even at the time, and that was the long takes without an edit that Spielberg did. And this is a technique that many, many filmmakers just can't do or don't do, or many movies don't do. And there's a scene, you know, it, for those of you that might want to go back to the movie, you can fast forward to these two scenes. There's two scenes in particular that I would direct you to. One is on a ferry taking uh, uh, Chief Brody, uh, Roy Scheider across 
uh, it's in Martha's Vineyard, you know, across, uh, I don't know, some, some tributary and up rolls this kind of Cadillac, this burnt red Cadillac and out pops the mayor and all his cronies. And they're going to try to intimidate the new chief of police to keep the beaches open. And the scene is one long take. It's got to be like a five page scene. And you got to understand when you're a director and you're facing a five page scene, oh, you got coverage, you got this, you got the wide shot, you got the close ups, you got the camera move, you've got all this coverage. It's a oneer on a boat. And it starts as as the car rolls on and it all you got to watch it. I mean, I, 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 I would have to describe it live, but the way he stages the characters, moves them around, brings them up into the camera, drops people back. Watch the staging. It is fantastic. And then it ends and, and he timed it so that it ends as the boat is arriving at the other side. So to top it all off, he timed the scene perfectly from, you know, from one side to the other side of the, of the inlet. And it's just, and the acting is bang on all of them, the coroner, the mayor, chief Brody, a couple of other goofballs. It's really good. And then the other one, that again is 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 where um, Hooper, Richard Dreyfus, and and Brody, and again the mayor are out in front of the billboard that some kids have painted a, a shark fin on, and they're trying to argue with him because they found the boat with with the tooth in it and the guy's face that pops out underwater, the big big jump scare of the movie, and um, and they're arguing in front of this billboard, which they, he doesn't reveal. Spielberg doesn't reveal. Of course, Spielberg is the king of the reveal. I think I've told you this before. Maybe I've told you this before. All you got to do is just every, pretty much every single shot is a reveal for Steven and, or at least every third. And, and they're arguing and you've got, it's Citizen Kane level staging, particularly using the triangle. Um, the triangle was, was really became, well, John Ford and, and um, Orson Welles both use the, the triangle staging where you've got a character on the left, a character on the right and a character in the center. And then you keep moving them around into different positions so that certain ones are facing the camera and certain ones aren't through the use, you know, of dialogue and staging and emphasis, but without a cut. And this is the kind of technique, Dana, you just don't see anymore. You just don't see it. I mean, yes, Aratu did incredible stuff in Birdman with the long take, but again, that's an anomaly. That's one movie a year. Yeah. This was in a pop culture audience driven this was not an art film <laughs> this was jaws and he's doing super sophisticated art film staging just classic high-end direction um and and again people say oh the scares the shark the this the that watch the staging watch the camera watch the long takes and there are many of them another great one in the hospital after his son is attacked in the pond anyway i could go on and on and on i could just teach a class on Jaws well, because I, you can pretty much learn everything you need to know from that movie. <laughs> I, I do. I do have one question that maybe you can answer because I'm, all, I'm forever fascinated by the fact that he was 26 years old at the time of this, um, yes, and yes, it was yes. his second theatrical film after the Sugarland yes, Express. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, do filmmakers at that age today get the kind of latitude to do those kinds of those kinds of shots to do those kinds of scenes? I mean. This is, I know this is kind of out of left field. No, but. no, they don't. And here's the reason why. It's it's not that no one's not letting them. It, it's that the material doesn't behoove it. I mean, you're you're not. I mean, if it, there's just now. Oh, I mean, just I don't spin too far off into filmmaking then versus filmmaking now. I mean, this was character driven. Every scene I just described is completely character driven. And just most films today. Yes, there are a small handful. Yes, you'll get Lady Bird, and yes, you'll get. But, but. They tend to, the films that are more character driven tend to be on a very small canvas. 
you know, they tend to be very small, character driven, you know, Noah Baumbach and, you know, Lady Bird and, and, or, or maybe a period piece that's more, you know, but you're, you know, um, the Florida Project, you know, these are all really interesting films, but, but this was Jaws, right? So this is like, you know, it's, it's Moby Dick, right? It's, it's the, you know, the old man in the sea. It's got these epic themes and these kind of, you know, in the case of, of these conflicts, they're kind of political issues that are going on in the town and the, you know, and mother nature and, you know, um, all, all these things. So there, to me, I would blame it on the material more than I would the filmmakers or anyone stopping them. I just don't think the material, and yes, what's interesting is you will see long takes at the front of, let's say an Avengers movie. There's that, right. That famous long take on the first Avengers. I want to say where they're all in the forest, right. And it goes on and on and on. And that, you know, all the stories about how long it took to render it. And, but it's CG. It's CG. It's animation. In animation, there are incredible long takes being made all the time. And I consider those Marvel films or animation. They're, they're live actor, live action people against green screen, real people against green screen. The rest of the film is animation. So that's really what they are. I mean, just go look at the making of, go get yourself a Cinefx magazine, the best, by the way, FX magazine out there. And you'll see that it's all CG and people against green. And there's a few props, um, but it looks pretty comical actually. when <laughs> you see how they really do the behind the scenes stuff. And, and so all the rest, the, the incredible, long, crazy cameras, those aren't the same thing as getting a bunch of actors on a moving boat that's got to pull up in a car. They got to get out of the car. They got to come to the camera. They got to reverse move. They got to rotate out. They got to rotate in. The camera pulls back. They come up to the camera. The camera turns around. The boat arrives and the scene is over all in one in five minutes. It's just not the same thing. I'm sorry. It's just, you know, one is controlled in a computer and you can do it again and again and again until it's perfect. And the other one is, live human beings in the real world, making it happen. And that gives your film immediacy. In fact, as a little aside, I used to talk to Steven about, um, about his, you know, long takes and, and he, you know, he has them in all his films. There's an incredible one in Sugarland Express where in the car, uh, uh, Ben Johnson comes up behind their car and the, the camera's looking out the back of the car and they're having a conversation between the two cars on the, on the car radio. And Ben Johnson comes around the side of the car and the camera comes around. Then Ben Johnson goes around in the front of their car and they're driving and comes around and the camera, Ben Johnson goes on the other side of the car and then rotates all the way to the back car. So it's a 360 degree long take inside a car dialogue, live dialogue, car to car <laughs> without a cut. It's like, what? You know, later Children of Men, you know, did the same thing in an action sequence, but this was a dialogue sequence, you know, with the camera poked down through the roof camera operator on top of the car and, and, uh, you know, the lens rotating, um, on a snorkel and it's incredible. And it's in the early seventies before, you know, you know, it was just like you were, had to jerry rig everything. And so to me, Jaws not only showed me, you know, in the Hitchcockian sense about tension and about thrills and about suspense and about horror and about action. Um, but it also is an incredible, incredible um, lesson in character and staging and uh, camera movement. I mean, think about that pushing on Robert, Robert Shaw. Y'all know me. Y'all know I make a living. You know, I'll yeah. catch him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for 10. Anyway, you got to look at that scene, the slow push in on Robert Shaw. It's awesome. It's awesome. And it, and it's just, you know, it's the kind of thing I just watched it again yesterday. And I went, man, it was like I was transported right back there to 75 and I went, boy, I sure do see why this did it for me because it still does. 
where does that film rank amongst the best films ever made for you? Oh, well, it's in the, you know, top five or ten. Yeah. You know, it's, the best films ever made rotate for me. Sure. It holds, it holds the special spot for me as the film that made me want to direct, made me want to be a filmmaker, period. It's just, it's the one. So for me, in some ways I would say number one because of that. And then other movies, you know, rotate in and out for other reasons is, you know, depending upon depending upon my mood. <laughs> I'm going to name two other movies that came out in 1975. And I'm wondering if these were, well, they're radically different from each other and, and radically different from Jaws. But they were both, um, along with Jaws, they were both nominated for Best Picture that year. And that mm. would be... Uh, Robert Altman's Nashville, and yep. we've got Milos Forman's One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. Well, Cuckoo's Nest was one of the other films that inspired me uh, to want to direct. Um, I'd love the book. Uh, I'd read it in school, and I I still remember uh, my, my dad took me. It was R-rated, so I couldn't go on my own, and my dad took me because I just was dying to see it. And I, again, this would be in the 10 films that made me want to be a director would in fact have been Cuckoo's Nest that year. And again, I think probably more on a, on a character and performance level um, than you would necessarily think on a, on a filmmaking level. Although I completely respected and could see, I was already kind of on my journey of appreciating filmmaking. So I could, I could see the choices I was, or I was looking for the choices. Let's put it that way. But it, it's just such a performance-dominated movie, and um, you know, with with every character. I mean, obviously from Nicholson on down, just absolutely blowing me away. And to this day, again, I think you look at that film. Like, if that film, pretty much, if you could put put it in a time machine and and pretend it had never been made, and then released it fresh right now, knowing it had never happened until now, it would it would burn everything down. It would, people would just freak out by how uh, powerful that movie is. I think it would just blow everything being made today away. I think it still is as, is as fresh and powerful and it would be that way right now if you could, if you could um, re-release it in a void. But yeah, so that, that movie, oh my God. And again, I saw it multiple times in the, in the cinema I'm so lucky to have gotten to see it in the cinema. I'm so lucky to have grown up in this era. I mean, I got to see The Godfather in the cinema, which is another one of that era um, that that it kind of predated my my Jaws, you know, um, inspiration. But once I dug in on it, you know, I I, I got to see it again. Back then, you got to remember too, there were revival houses, so you could go see. You know, um, and there was there was one not too far away from where I lived in Pasadena and uh, the Rialto it was called. And and you could go see. So once I was like, wait a second, you know, I'd seen. Um, gosh, I guess I'd seen The Godfather, maybe even on TV the first time. And I was like, wait a second, I got to go check this out. And um, so when I went back and studied in the cinema, that's another film where that had a huge influence on me. It's funny, you know. Jaws, I mean, the movies that really kicked it in for me were Jaws, Close Encounters. Again, when Close Encounters, and I've talked to you about that in, the, in another podcast, but, you know, the first, I don't know, five, six minutes of Close Encounters is just about as gripping a piece of filmmaking as you can watch. Um, 
you know, all the way up to the the near miss UFOs at the uh, air traffic control center where they don't show you anything but green blips on a screen and you feel like you just missed a UFO. I mean, it's just like, what? I beg people, if you're interested in cinema, to just go rewatch that opening sequence in Mexico that then shifts to the air traffic controllers and uh, you are in for a cinematic treat. And again, so coming off Jaws, and this is before film school for me, of course, I'm still in, I guess, in high school and Close Encounters comes out and I went opening day, 10 a.m., Cinerama Dome, ditch school, got in line, and I mean, I I wasn't let down, you know? It was still that Spielberg that just, yeah, it was pretty exciting. Um, It was pretty exciting. American Graffiti did that for me too. American Graffiti is a movie I saw in the cinema. And it's just so funny because I didn't know that George Lucas is going to become George Lucas. And, you know, Jaws announced Spielberg, but I was there for the announcement. <laughs> Obviously, I mean, Coppola, what would he he'd come off, you know, Finian's Rainbow and, you know, you're a big boy now. So it wasn't like he was a household name yet. So it's so cool is I got to discover these movies that inspired me from filmmakers who went on to become the great, you know, some of the greatest directors in the history of the medium. And, and I kind of got to grow up on them coming into their own, which was, you know, the same with Brian De Palma. De Palma had a big influence on me. Um, Dress to Kill came out when I was in high school. And just again, not necessarily the narrative in that was as much my cup of tea as the style, you know, his, his use of the camera, you know, the storytelling, the editorial storytelling, as I just mentioned, American Graffiti. And then the two films that really in the seventies, um, that just, that literally kind of like elevated, when I saw that there was even another way to look at filmmaking, because I didn't have exposure at that point to foreign films. You know what I mean? So I really wasn't yet, again, you just couldn't go to the video store and get a foreign film. You know, it was, it was there on the other side of town. They were in one theater. It was a bigger deal to get to. So for me, like Mean Streets and Taxi Driver were kind of the first two movies where I went, wait a second, that's a whole other kind of filmmaking. Different from Jaws, different from The Godfather, different from American Graffiti or Cuckoo's Nest. And you look at those two movies and even today they stand out stylistically as being incredibly unique. Even after all these years and in some ways they're even more unique because kind of no one's doing what he did back then. Even him because he's doing such bigger stories. Right. You you before we started recording you had touched on just the going to the theater in the seventies, how the mm. experience is, is so vastly different than what it is now. And you had mentioned to me that, you know, discussions that would be had, that would be had in school about, yeah. about films. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, we would see, for instance, Cuckoo's Nest, you know, uh, all my friends that, that was like, we weren't talking about, um, Gosh, I don't even know. Superman came out in 78, you know, and the original Dick Donner Superman, and we all went, and we all cheered and Superman flied and all that stuff. I remember the theater was all amped up, you know, probably not dissimilar to a big Marvel release now or a big DC release now. But the movies we talked about, the movies everyone, you know, kind of was in the, the, in the air uh, were Cuckoo's Nest, Network. God, I remember when Network came out and everyone was talking about, you know, how crazy it was and I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore. And, and uh, you know, his performance and Dunaway and William Holden, who was one of my favorites from, 
you know, Sunset Boulevard and Stalag 17. I mean, you, you, Sabrina, you, you really were talking about, I mean, we watched Dr. Strangelove in school. They screened Dr. Strangelove, I, you know, in one of my classes. And I remember we then went on to, you know, we'll all be a gold darn smoking prairie dog. If we was flying any lower, we'd need sleigh bales on this thing. We were doing <laughs> slim pickings and we were doing, you know, Major Bat Guano and we were doing Colonel, you know, uh, Lionel Mandrake and uh, Jack D. Ripper, um, Sterling <laughs> Hayden. We were imitating, you know, Mandrake. Women desire me, Mandrake, but I deny them my essence. You know, we were doing this. These were our jokes in high school. Like our mimics were were from Doctor Strangelove or from Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, God, I remember seeing The Deer Hunter my senior year, and all we could talk about for months was Deer Hunter. And I went back and saw it multiple times. And because I just had never see again, that was a Jaws like experience for me because when you get to that Russian roulette sequence, yeah, and you get. To, I just had never seen anything like it. And I know, you know, movies age differently over time, but look, go watch that sequence. Well, that, that that's a question I have for you. And that's it's so interesting. You bring up the, the deer hunter on that one, because I wanted to talk about the difference between from going into the sixties, from the sixties into the seventies. And when was the first time you were really shocked in, in cinema, in, in the theater. When was the first time you saw a movie and you were like, holy shit. Now, for me, that scene in The Deer Hunter was one of the most real moments mm -hmm. that I've ever had watching a movie. So I've got a couple questions for you. The first one is, you know, when was the first time you were really shocked in the theater and you knew that, that movies were going to push boundaries that television will never touch, that radio will never touch, that only books will touch? Um, right. And second, right. and second question, you mentioned about Cuckoo's Nest being released as is in 2018 and blowing people away. Yes. The Deer Hunter, which I rewatched three months ago, is an extraordinary film it is. that I wonder oh. released as is today with the way it takes its time to build its characters. Could it survive in today's market? So we'll go back to the first question, which is. When was the first time you were truly shocked in cinema? Well, the first time I, I was shocked by my reaction was Jaws. Okay. Just because I was shocked by the power of the filmmaking, getting me to react as if I was in the water. I'd never had that experience in a cinema, in a cinema where I literally had what I, what felt like an immersive emotional response. Like I was in the water or I was on that boat. I remember there's one shot where where uh, Brody is going across the edge of the boat to go out to the front to get to the barrels, and his yep. foot slips yep. on the railing. And I remember in the theater going, ah, ha, ha, like he's gonna fall in the water, you know. And I was like, oh, it's just a foot slipping on the the railing, close up of, uh, along the rail. And I was like, because I was so, I immersed is really the only word I give. I was just in it, like I was there. So that shocked me that a movie could do that. That's one level. The other one is the deer hunter and it is that sequence. And it is, I couldn't even really process again. I was a kid and I couldn't really, as a 16 year old, I couldn't really process what even was going 
on in in inside my head. I was so what well, shocked is the, is the right word by the by the intensity and the violence and the horror and the and again what's interesting is it wasn't shocking because there was blood. It wasn't shocking because people were being decapitated or something that kind of shock. Cuz it wasn't shock value. It was it was because I was invested in the characters and suddenly these two characters, you know, Walken and De Niro are put in this position and and um John Savage are put in this position and I just couldn't fathom that that I couldn't fathom and that really was one of the first realizations for me that that of the depth you know like you said I think it's really that you said like what books can do kind of the novelistic depth that a film could take you to places you just otherwise wouldn't even understand how to journey to on any level and and that 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 movie that movie definitely impacted me deeply at the time could that movie be released as is today Absolutely, it could, and I think that it would win. Uh, I think it would still win a lot of awards. I think it would still be be revered. I think it would be maybe even more so than it was then. But I think it would struggle to be a success. Yeah. I think that it would be more like um, there will be blood. You know, it would be like a movie film lovers and you know cineasts all recognize as a masterpiece. But you know, it's just obviously not for everybody. And I think that that there would be controversy, you know, surrounding it, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing in today's clickbait world. But, but I think that, that yes, I do. I think that the cinematography, I mean, Vilma Sigmund cinematography, the music, the performances, look at the cast in that movie, John Cazale, Meryl Streep. Yeah, I think it would. I think, I think it would be absolutely recognized as, you know, a powerful and important movie. I think it would struggle to make any kind of money. Right. Now, before we go continue through your list, I have a question that we got to go back to The Godfather for a moment. Yeah, yeah. So Godfather releases 1972. It's, you said there's revival cinemas where you're able to see the film. Yeah, because it was rated R when I I was too young to see it the first round. Tell me or talk to me a little bit about what kind of anticipation The Godfather Part Two would have had or had, excuse me, um, (laughs) upon its release and the realization that that film might even be better than the original. I'm trying to just wrap my head around how epic that must have been to see The Godfather and then see a film that the follow-up is just as good or arguably better. Well, that's why Coppola became, funnily enough, Coppola became my directorial touchstone for, for, for those reasons, in that in a row, he does Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather 2, and Apocalypse Now. Four in a row. And it, in fact, he was nominated twice for Best Director for both The Conversation and The Godfather 2, because Godfather 2 took so long, he was able to make converse, conversation in the interim. I believe, I believe that's correct. And he, to me, what was interesting was I loved what Steven could do with the camera and every technical aspect of, of, of filmmaking, sound, picture, music, performance, story, effects, everything. But, you know, then he, he kind of slid into, you know, 1941 and um, but then came back huge with uh, 
uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And of course, there's E.T. in there. But thematically, when Coppola hit with Godfather 2 and The Conversation, which again is another incredible, it's a masterpiece. Conversation is a masterpiece. And, and uh, it's, again, very influential on, on me. That movie um, studied it m many, many times. And it's certainly not talked about enough, um, the conversation, because it kind of gets lost amongst amongst Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. And then Godfather 2 hits, and it's just kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like Babe Ruth pointing at the stands and just knocking it out. You know what I mean? It, it's like, on one hand, I expected it. I'm just talking from my own personal perspective. I wasn't that dialed into to kind of the critical world uh, at that age. Um, but from my own perspective, it was like, yeah, it's Coppola. Of course he's going to do that. Like, why wouldn't it? What was so weird is I think it was kind of taken for granted. Um, and I think only afterwards was it, and I'd be curious to go back and look at the reviews because I, I, as I recall, there was some, you know, it was long and it was this and the cross cutting and it wasn't as, because it's not as juicy as the first one. You know what I mean? It's not, the first one's more pulpy yeah. in, in a way. You know, you've got the toll booth and things like that. You know, Luca Brazzi in the bar. You've got, you know, the final, of course, epic uh, cross cutting. The second one's much more kind of, character driven and emotional and cerebral and poor, you know, Fredo out on the boat and the, you know what I mean? And it's, it's dark. It is freaking dark. I mean, Michael all alone in Lake Tahoe with that horrible pushing on him and profile on the chair out by the lake and the colds alone, just alone. I mean, he's alone by default at the end of Godfather one, but Godfather two, he's alone by choice. I mean, he's murdered his brother. It's just, it's kind of mind-boggling, honestly. I mean, it, to me, it's kind of like looking at, you know, Van Gogh's output or looking at, you know, Monet or Degas or Renoir or, you know, Rembrandt. I think I think that Copeland in that period, and it's just, you know, the, unfortunately, the economics of filmmaking catch up to everybody. Um, they do. They eventually caught up to him with one, one from the heart, and I think that it was tough to get back on his economic footing again after that. But But you, you know, he put himself in such a hole, but... So that changed his artistic output. Whereas had he had the freedom of it just being a canvas and paints, I think Coppola would have gone on to make, you know, 10 more masterpieces. But, you know, people really don't understand. Well, they understand. But I mean, what really is hard to remember is that the, how the economics of, of filmmaking, meaning you need to make people money, yeah. <laughs> catch up to you. Um, and so uh, it was, it, it, you know, those four in a row, it was just like he was on such a roll. I don't know. It was just like he was, it's hard. If you could go back and really see, there's kind of no comparable like directorial run, you know, he had. And then to to top it with what is my favorite movie of all time, Apocalypse Now. So Apocalypse Now still stands for me as my favorite movie ever made and the movie that was, literally the slam dunk. I have to do this. This is, you know, I was, I was not yet in college. It's my, again, my senior year in 79. And, uh, again, I was there opening day and, uh, again at the dome. And when those helicopters went from left to right and right to left in the surrounds, which I had never even experienced surround sound that way before. Um, and then, you know, this is the end and the napalm drop. I just was like, it was game over just game set match for me and and watching that film now which i encourage everybody to do think about it there is not one frame of cg in that movie so when you watch the ride of the valkyries se sequence every one of those helicopters is in the air 
all that gunfire, all that. There is not a digital or optical comp in that entire film besides dissolves. And uh, just what it takes to orchestrate that, achieve that, film it, cut it, design the sound, score it. it it's <laughs> it's like, a, it's just, it's its own, completely its own thing. It's like building the pyramids or something. It's just, it's its own one-off. There have been others. There have been others. There's been Lawrence of Arabia. There's been Bridge on the River Kwai. There's been Seven Samurai, The Wild Bunch, Once Upon a Time in the West. Those are all films that, to me, sit right there with Apocalypse. But in terms of modern cinema, and look at the camera work. Look at Storaro's camera work. It's it's as gorgeous and as perfect as you can shoot any movie today, even with all your digital stuff. Let me, um, I was anyway. gonna, let me ask you this about uh, Apocalypse Now, which is, again, I, I can only second what you said. If uh, those listening, uh, maybe some of the younger listeners, have never seen Apocalypse Now, uh, I think you should just stop the recording. Or stop stop yep. listening to this right now and, and locate, yep. locate a copy of the film and watch it. A uh, couple questions for you regarding that film. First one, looking back now, I've seen, you know, Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. Um was there any inkling of how troubled that shoot was when you saw the film, or was that something that you learned later on? And if it was something you learned later on, did it just up your appreciation level for the film that much more? No, I knew, well, because of Godfather 1, 2 and the conversation, and because of my kind of obsessive fandom, I read anything and everything I could get my hands on about Coppola. And in fact... Back then, because you didn't have the internet, I would have to go to the library and, and pull up a giant thing called the Reader's Guide to Periodicals. And in that, it was like a, a reference book that would you could look up some person's name, and then it would show you every article written that year about that person. And then you would have to go to the other magazine racks in the library and find those issues so you could read the articles. So that's what I used to do for Coppola. I used to do that for Spielberg, you know, De Palma and... and uh, you know, all my guys. And so uh, Scorsese. So, um, because we didn't get all the magazines at home. So I would go and wait and then I'd look up their names every week and then I'd see what had been written about them. So I knew time magazine had actually done a very long, you can still find it expose on the disaster that was apocalypse and how it had gone a year over schedule and how the typhoon had wiped out their sets and how it was going to be the biggest disaster in history. And it really wasn't until he screened it at the Cannes film festival, uh, kind of like barely finished, uh, maybe even unfinished that um, that it started to turn around. But it was literally the disaster, and I knew and it hurt, it was the disaster that was gonna undo him. And I just thought to myself, I don't know about that. I don't know, he's got Brando, he's in the jungle, this guy, I don't know. Um, and uh, so I was really rooting for it, but the press were killing him. It was gonna be Heaven's Gate. You know, It was gonna be the disaster that brought down the studio. Um, ironically, the same studio that did Heaven's Gate, yeah. UA, yeah. and uh, uh, that, that later on was brought down by Chimino and, and um, became Orion, who I made State of Grace for. But anyway, so I was following it like a, you know, like a season like we do football. I was following that thing to see what was gonna happen. And so when it came out, funnily enough, they, the first um, month they, they screened it, at the dome, he didn't even have credits on it yet. And you had to buy tickets in advance, like a theater, like theater, theater. And so I bought tickets in advance 
for opening day. And when the movie ended, there was when Apocalypse ended, there were no credits, and they gave you a booklet huh. of of photos from the making of the movie. Oh, that's awesome. And all the credits, which I still have to this day. That's incredible. So yeah, I was completely on pins and needles to see this movie to see if it was the disaster everyone said it was. And of course, that opening sequence with um Martin Sheen in the hotel room, it, it, you know, I was pretty sure after the first, I don't know, six, seven minutes that we were in solid, solid Coppola territory. Staying with Apocalypse Now just for a moment, that year it was nominated for Best Picture, losing to Kramer versus Kramer. And I'm wondering if there was a moment there where you felt, was this the first time you felt like maybe the Academy maybe got this wrong or... What are your thoughts on Kramer versus Kramer? Well, I'll start with Apocalypse when it lost. Now, this was back when the Academy Awards for me were like, oh my God. I mean, we had the family party. I invited all my friends. We all huddled around like our 12-inch Sony, you know, <laughs> tube TV. And I lost my shit when it didn't win. I just couldn't believe that of all, I mean, I just... I thought they'd gone insane. I thought they'd absolutely lost their mind. But you know what else I knew? It's when I first started to realize at a tender young age, what happens when you win too much? What happens when you're no longer the underdog, you're the overdog? What happens when people say, yeah, well, you know, sure, he was in there for a year and he could do whatever he wanted and blah, blah, blah. And they start, they turn on you because you know what it is? We build up our heroes and then we rip them down. And I felt like that was the beginning of the end in terms of the the town and me, actually even the media supporting and believing in Coppola because they gave him a hard time. They really did. They gave him a hard time in that movie and the next one was One from the Heart and we all know how that ended. And so um, I was I was apoplectic about it. Now, I like Kramer versus Kramer. I love Dustin Hoffman, I think, and Meryl Streep and how could you not appreciate the the performances Benton is a really actually fine director. I have no bone to pick with Kramer versus Kramer, but it's a little bit like I enjoyed Ordinary People too, but really Raging Bull versus Ordinary People? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to Mr. Redford and everyone involved, but, you, and that's when I just started to realize that the awards themselves were silly and that they don't always, you know, for whatever reasons, again, like, like how can you, how can that not be Scorsese's best picture? And best director. How can it not? It's raging freaking bull. Like you just, that's just like, you know, and that film came out when I was in film school. So that became an influence. So there's a difference kind of from, you know, your original question is what inspired me. And then I could do a whole nother one on what, I, I mean, what inspired me to become a director and then what influenced me. Oh my God. The movies that influenced me as a director, that's a whole other thing. And a lot of these movies did too, but, but, um, the, yeah, so to me, I just that's when I went, okay, this thing's a joke. I had that moment in 1998. That's when I had the realization. That was the year that Saving Private Ryan oh. lost to Shakespeare in Love. And and, and that was the moment. Oh that was, that I mean, that was, and let's see, to put things in perspective, see, by, I would yeah. have been 18, 19 years old at the time. Yeah, maybe see, so we were at the same age as yeah. my Apocalypse thing. And, and the, oh, actually, Raging Bull, I was 18, 19. I was 16, 17 in Apocalypse, and I was 18, 19 for Raging Bull, which was just a year, I think a year or two later, 80, 81. So, yeah, right in the same spot. And and that was the moment. I mean, I was, it was Best Picture, and, here, and she announces. But or, again, yeah. 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. And I was just going to say, and, and, and you know, I'm, you're, you're wrapping it up. It's it's all said. It's it's in the bag. Spielberg's won Best Director. This is a no-brainer. Uh, this has been a good award show. Uh, Saving Private Ryan was a movie that was extremely influential on me because it was the first yeah. time that I truly understood the horrors of war because every World War II film that I had seen predating that was, you know, you know, very gung ho and heroic, and and this was the first time yeah. that I, I witnessed what the horror of World War Two was. That's what Apocalypse was for me in terms of, of Vietnam. But yeah, so so when it didn't win, I mean, I was aghast and I was disappointed for weeks after that, and that's all I would talk yeah. about. So I understand your moment with Apocalypse now. Yeah, it's crazy. I but by then, see, it's funny. By the time Saving Ryan around, I just shrugged, you know, because. To me, I already knew, you know, of the I was in the film business already and I knew the Weinstein thing and I knew how they they bought votes and I knew, you know, uh, I I knew the I knew the game. It was like the curtain had been pulled, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the green curtain. I saw that it there was no such thing as Oz, that the whole thing was phony and which it is. And and um, you know, I just uh, at, by that point, I had started to check out out of that whole thing validating anything for me. You know, I just don't look to awards on any level to validate my own opinion about what I think is great work. And and uh, that's a perfect example of an epic fail on the Academy's part. If I take one, there's one little comfort I take in the Academy Awards these days. And uh, I had Jim Hempel on a couple weeks ago and we did a little Oscar oh, preview. for. I love Jim. He's great. He, he really is. I agree with you. We discussed the fact that the nominations, not the winners, but the nominations are voted mm-hmm. upon by their peers. Yeah. And so I feel like, you know, when you look at your nominations for Best Director, Best Cinematographer, and a lot of these technical awards, the nominations are, are by their peers and their peers only, only people that are in that field. So I actually look at the ones that are nominated. At, the nominations, to me, are the awards. Because this yeah, is yeah. their peers. That's right. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and in that regard, they do a pretty good job of of, of getting of getting everyone in there. Um, but I yeah. Oh, my God. There's been you know, there's gosh, we could do a whole podcast just on the overlooked films and the history of the Academy. But Apocalypse for me, uh, uh, same private Ryan and um, Raging Bull. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. But, yeah, what's really a, a bummer for me is that I is that a lot of these, whether it was Close Encounters or Apocalypse or Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge in the River Kwai, I always wanted to make an epic. You know, I always wanted to have a shot at at making a film in the category of my heroes, you know, Lean and Coppola and Spielberg and and you know, and Scorsese and it and uh never happened. Never happened. I came close a couple of times, a couple of different scripts that were that I had that were fantastic that that were epic. Um, but they're expensive, you know, and they just didn't go. And, and I think that what happened was, you know, over time, um, dramatic epics, you know, fell out of favor and science fiction epics, you know, or, or comic book epics, whatever I consider it all kind of science fiction, right. Um, epics fell into, fell into vogue and that was really the only, so I wrote one, I wrote one, uh, a big science fiction epic, but again, couldn't get it made. And, uh, it's really a shame because, you know, I've studied and I mean studied. I mean, I, I, I've i taken these movies like, for instance, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West for your listeners. If you want to watch maybe the greatest opening credit sequence in the history of film, certainly right up there, top five or ten. Once Upon a Time in the West at a train station, 
You just got to watch the first 10 minutes. You'll see what I mean. And I take a sequence like that and I go through and I frame grab on my computer every single shot. And then I put them into a PDF in order. And um, so that way, again, I can just study the coverage and study the editing patterns outside of the drama of the film. And I've done that with a lot of films, um, The Chasing in a French Connection, The Final Shootout in Taxi Driver, um, you know, a lot of stuff like that. And and uh, it's just unbelievable that, that unfortunately, the, the world of film has just moved so far away from uh, these things. I like to say that the thing is, you're right about the world of film moving so far away, but I also believe that there is enough of us out there that are beginning to recognize this and that are not asking but demanding that we get some of this back. Now, maybe we don't get it on the big screen, but we get it into the streaming platforms. And we, and we but the, but I think the the epic storytelling, it's not gone. It's not gone. It's in, it's hibernating. Let's just call it that. That's what it is right now because it's there's there's a yearning for it. There's a calling for it. But that's. A whole nother discussion we've had a few a few mm-hmm. times. Okay, so Phil, in part two of this discussion, we are going to look at the decision for you to go to film school. And I'm mm-hmm. incredibly curious about the moment you go, all right, I'm going to film school. What do I do first? And so that's, that's what I want to talk about. So thank you for joining me, and we, we'll talk again next week, okay? All right, great. Thanks, Dana. Excellent. The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. You'll find and all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.